Kia ora, welcome back to Aotearoa Unearthed, where I get to spend some quality time with New Zealand archaeology and archaeologists. Today we're looking at how the Dunedin foreshore was filled in and built on by Pākehā settlers. In today's episode I'm talking to Dr Matthew Schmidt, formerly my colleague at Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Tonga, who now works for the Department of Conservation in Dunedin. Matt's done heaps of interesting archaeology down south, Goldfields, Dunedin City, the Norwegian whaling base on Stewart Island and the fernery at Lanark's Castle. And today we're going to have a really good chat about the Dunedin foreshore. Uh, so thanks for being with us here today, Matt. We're recording this on Zoom, so hopefully the sound quality is all right. Today, Matt is going to fill us in on how the early settlers of Dunedin filled in their shoreline. So to begin with, Matt, what is shoreline reclamation? Well, the process, it was actually quite commonly used around the world in the 19th century in particular, but earlier uh, Romans used to do it. It's usually done where you have a really good harbour and you need to create a flat piece of land that goes out into the water and then you can occupy that land and put all your you know, your buildings and houses on it. It's not an uncommon thing and it's gradually a process of dumping earth, clay, rubbish, any sort of fill right onto the foreshore. It's not very environmentally friendly, but that's just what they used to do. Is there any type of fill which was seen as superior and doing a better job or it was truly just whatever? Truly anything. Like, so for Dunedin, as they um, built roads and cut terraces into the hillsides for buildings and all that, everything would go onto the harbour, plus your rubbish. And then later on, when they started to dredge the uh, harbour channel, that was then used as fill as well. What you find is you have these fantastic stratigraphic layers that go through the reclamation of different events of fill and what they used. So, yeah, anything, really, yeah. And was there a plan in terms of where they dumped the fill, or was it random? It was pretty much planned, even from the start, because when the European settlers came into Pardini by Princess Street, by Toitu Stream, there was a mud flat there. And so the idea from the outset is, okay, we'll just start filling in these areas because when people come in with their boats, we don't want to come up the mud flat too far. More or less, people always had in their mind, okay, well, let's start reclaiming. And then pretty soon after that, the city engineer did make maps and plan where the reclamation was going to be. So it was a planned process. Um, in fact, Kettle's map back in about 1846 did already show reclamation for Dunedin. Just to double check, when was Dunedin first settled by Europeans? Well, the first Pakia arrived in 1848 in the upper harbour because Europeans are already down further in the harbour because of the Weller brothers in the 1830s had their uh, whaling station further up the harbour. And there was a community there and a lot of local Maori worked for the brothers. Usually reclamation tends to be when a colony or settlement was being set up, similar to Wellington and Auckland, uh, Freeman's Bay today, that's reclamation, and San Francisco as well. Massive chunk of that is reclaimed land. So how would they have got it there? Uh, oh, a few ways. What Typically what they did, and it's quite an interesting process, and it was similar use in San Francisco as well. The initial fill, you would start dumping in front of you and create a causeway. So Rattray Street here was a causeway, and then St. Andrew Street, a block down, is another causeway, and another block down, Stewart Street, was a causeway. So you'd make a causeway going out, and then you would basically hang a right, and you'd basically make a square, and then you'd infill what was left in, inside of that. And then once you'd done that, you'd progress out to the next bit. And so when it was first being done, it was horse and cart. So any rubbish that came around Dunedin was just bought horse and cart, thousands of them, all dumping down. 
as they got more efficient, they put narrow gauge little railway carts on there. They could be filled up to the brim and then and then taken out to the reclamation and dumped off the side. And that's not unlike what they do today. And then, then when the dredges came in, they could just dump straight in. The early years, yeah, very labour intensive, but that's the way everyone got rid of their rubbish. So how much fill would you need to fill in a harbour? It just seems like it must be such absolutely massive amounts. How did they do it without big machinery? Oh God, millions of tonnes, yeah. Dunedin, if you dug down, or just where I am, building just off Princess Street, it's only about two to three metres and then you hit the old mud flat. So you're looking at two to three metres deep and then you're looking at hundreds of metres out from the main road. Uh, Princess Street used to be able to shoreline Dunedin all the way out to the harbour. So yes, yeah, tonnes, millions of tonnes of material. If you look at Dunedin, the way the hills are being shaped and the buildings, you can actually see where it's coming from. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of fill. Do you have an idea of kind of how much area of land has been reclaimed in Dunedin Harbour? Uh, oh, I've never calculated it. I've created some maps which are available and it shows the changing shoreline uh, from 1848 up to the present day. But it's a massive area. It's, it is absolutely huge. I mean, if you think about Princess Street uh, was the boundary of the shoreline. So when you look at the map of Dunedin today, imagine sort of everything from Princess to George Street, which is the main road to the middle, has all been reclaimed. Or if it was muddy and swampy, it's all been solidified through dumping in layers of fill and clay and things like that. Oh, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, it'd be good. interesting to calculate it, actually. Well, I, I'm not volunteering. <laughs> no, no, it's right there. And if you count also out at South Dunedin, there are mudflats there. And, of course, they had fill put on top of them as well. So, you know, when you look at a map, include that, it's, it's a massive area. So what's it like doing archaeology out in the reclamation area? What are the conditions like? A lot of it's pretty dry. It usually only gets puggy when you get down to the original smud surface, you know, the original shoreline. And then it's very sticky and puggy. What we found around here is you tend to get an upper layer of fill, which could be uh, artefacts or sand or soil or something like that. And then you get a layer of clay that tends to cap the surface. And then we found another layer of fill, another bit of clay. And what we think is happening is they're building up clay areas to create solid surfaces. And then as more fills come in and no one, no one has been there, they've put in more fill and then a clay surface to build on. But as you get down to a couple of metres deep, it gets really puggy. It is really soft. People would be surprised. They're literally in Dunedin walking on a cap of introduced earth on top of a muddy surface. Matt, I have to ask, is puggy a technical term? I've not heard that word before. <laughs> oh, no, not really. You know, we go tramping and you go through a sort of real muddy area. It's all sort of puggy and squishy and soft. Yeah, yeah, it's just like that. You get the early artefacts preserved there. The reclamation's interesting because you get a timeline. As the reclamation progressed, you see the changes in artefacts. So right by Princess Street, you get the very early stuff, 1848, 1850s artefacts. Then you get the 1860s stuff. And as you get further and further out, you not only get more dumps of artefacts, but you can see changes in the economy of the city. So you go from a sort of limited variety of ceramics and bottles and things to a massive variety. By the time you get 150 metres out towards the harbour, you're getting very expensive ceramics. And at the Chinese gardens, for example, uh, bits of fur came up and felt hats and um, quite expensive things. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I often forget is that Dunedin was just such a wealthy city, wasn't it, because of the gold rush? It was. It was, it was New Zealand's wealthiest city until about the 1920s. I think a lot of Kiwis forget that. You know, today we all look at the modern cities up north. 
But yeah, Dunedin was the richest city. And you can tell by the architecture today. If people want to get an idea of it, there's a you can get this photograph by searching Digital New Zealand. It's a 1902 photograph by Moore and Moody. And it's taken from Logan Point. And from there, you can see the wealth of Dunedin and the reclamation still happening. It's a huge panoramic uh, black and white photograph. Beautiful. So do you think because Dunedin was so rich that more got chucked out and people were a bit more disposable? Yeah, I do. You know, there's a lot of uh, items, like particularly bottles and ceramic material, and you think, I wonder why I threw that out and they didn't reuse it. Because the Joe Average beer bottle, if you're like a, a gold miner in the middle of nowhere, you'd reuse your bottle. Here, yeah, completely disposable. I suppose you could call it the plastic of the generation. They, I'm amazed how much was actually thrown out, which could have been reused. But yeah, I, and also think it did show a bit of the wealth of the city. It was, it was, I think it was a bit of a disposable society, maybe. And Matt, I know you've taken walking tours, walking around the old shoreline, and I'm just wondering what people's response is when you describe this to them. Oh, very, very surprised usually how much Dunedin's changed and how much of Dunedin was actually filled and, and, and how much is, you know, it was lived on as well. And what a strange place to actually build a city. It was hilly and muddy. Maori living on the other side of Otakao, they had the right idea. They, <laughs> local Runanga lived in a dry place, you know, good access to the harbour and, and good fishing spots and all that. And where the Toitu stream came out, uh, there's a wonderful early painting uh, showing a couple of uh, uh, waka um, pulled up there. So local Maori would come here and, you know, hunt and get resources and all that. And I think people were surprised when you tell them this was all mud and all that. Why didn't they live on the other side? So, so why didn't they? <laughs> it was just seen as being a more convenient place to put the jetties out for the harbour. It was seen as being quite sheltered. And that there was that opportunity to reclaim, really, I think, and, and, and go straight out into that harbour um, channel. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because I guess the settlers are thinking not so much about where's the nice place to live, but just where's convenient for ships to disembark. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they, they, that's right. I think they're just looking for a place which um, it's good, well sheltered, yeah, and ships can come in. Uh, in a way, it actually did make sense where you could have an area which you could make flat and then have these lovely hills in behind where you could put all your housing and things like that. We have a section called Show and Tell where we talk about a few specific artefacts that are really interesting. So I'm wondering what you'd like to talk about, maybe something you found in the reclamation. Oh, I think it was something that the late Angela Middleton found at the Chinese gardens. Uh, she found a felt hat and it had survived. I think that era of reclamation she excavated was 1880s. And what amazed me is this beautiful felt hat had survived all these years and when it came out it still felt soft. Another artifact that I thought was amazing, uh, quite beautiful, was Cheryl Court. She was doing some archaeological work in Falul Street and came across shoes and one of them was absolutely beautiful ornate child's shoe and why I'd been thrown out I don't know why, just showed the craftsmanship of those pieces yeah, it was just just two lovely pieces of clothing, which I thought were which were very cool. And I'll give you one more. I think the Dunedin Causeway that was uncovered, I think 2008, and that really showed what was going on in early Dunedin, how they cut down timber and laid them across a muddy area so people could keep their feet dry. And that work was managed by Peter Peachy. And that's going to go back on display, actually. The, the timbers have been preserved, and that dates from the 1850s, I believe. Where would people be able to see that? In the Wall Street Mall, that's where it's going to go on display. It's going to be put under the floor with glass plates over the top. 
So you're literally walking over the top where early Pākehā settlers were walking. Yeah. So Matt, for the Digging Deep section, I'm wondering if you could just tell us how the settlers built on this reclaimed land. By the time Dunedin started to be reclaimed uh, and the big buildings were put on, now the typical buildings were bond buildings. They, they were very clever Victorians. They took into account that they were built on reclamation. Some buildings, for example, the ones I've seen, the foundations of these buildings were built like the piers for a bridge. And so one of the buildings I looked at um, not too long ago, it was like an X on the ground, one and a half, two metres down into the reclamation. And it was like feet, which would splayed out. And then it would come up to a point. And then on top of that, there was a block of stone. And then on top of that, your support beam for your building was above. So you had all these foundations with splayed feet to sit and spread the weight of the building on that surface. And the other way they did it as well, which were the old Edinburgh House, 1865, uh, that was built. The foundations around the walls were built in a, like in arches in a wave pattern. And that made sure all the weight of the building was spread equally around all the sides of the building and through the middle. The Victorians are really clever. They based it on, they knew about reclamation. They knew how soft it was. So they knew how to sit their buildings straight on top of it. And are those buildings still around today? Yeah, they're all still around. Dunedin's very lucky. It has quite an extensive number of these early large Victorian buildings with these foundations on them. I've been lucky because um, with the uh, building restorers around the city, they give me a call and I go and have a look and, and see how they did their foundations. And also the Victorians knew about earthquakes. They knew they had to do some really good solid foundations because if there's an earthquake on reclamation, it goes a little bit jelly-like. And so they took they actually took that into account. They, they knew what they were doing on the reclamation. It's funny because we think, oh, you know, these old buildings, they're not very safe and they didn't know how to build them structurally sound. But it sounds like they actually were quite aware. Oh, very aware. And as you said, a lot of them were bond buildings. And one thing you wanted to make sure that if goods were coming off a ship, you really needed to make sure it was safe. Yeah. Do you want to tell us what bond buildings are in a bit more detail? Yeah. So if your goods coming off a ship, it would go into one of these buildings. So it was nice and safe and you might pay like a, like a tax sort of thing to get your goods released. And that was a way of recovering uh, costs. You might bring goods in and then charge someone to pick them up from the bond building. Well, I guess it would have been pretty valuable, a lot of the stuff in there. Yeah, really valuable because there was no major manufacturing in, you know, in a lot of the early Dunedin cities, so everything was coming in. You had local timber, but until your ironmongeries and everything that were developed, you were importing ceramics and clothes and bottles and everything like that. And of course, once it had been used, it wasn't wasted, it went back into the ground uh, for the reclamation. And Matt, I've got a question from a kid, and the question is just if you could choose anywhere, where would you want to do an archaeological dig? Anywhere in New Zealand or in the world? Oh, wow. Oh, that's really tricky. <laughs> it's a really difficult question. I think in, in New Zealand, it would have to be uh, in Mirihiku, probably somewhere around um, Fjordland and that, because that is where the first really early contacts with Europeans and Maori happened, where they, people got married in there. Down here, there was the earliest house and there was the Whenua Ho, which has been excavated. That's those families starting to join and the cultures, you know, swapping ideas and marrying each other. So I think to do research on one of the early sites down there. Overseas, I've always been partial to Egypt, been a few times there. And it is absolutely beautiful. It's friendly and beautiful and the archaeology is absolutely incredible. Yeah, the other two places, I think. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Matt, for talking to us. That's been really awesome. And do you think you'll ever do another shoreline tour? 
Yep, that's in the plans. I try and do one every year, but particularly during the Heritage Festival, we do two or three of them, and they always get a good turnout. Yeah, they're, they're quite fun. I really enjoyed talking to Matt about how Dunedin's shoreline is made out of rubbish. Often I think the popular idea of archaeology is around finding lost treasure. Think Indiana Jones, Saxon hordes of gold in English fields, Tutankhamun's tomb full of wonderful things, the Chinese emperor and his thousands of clay soldiers. But really most archaeology is literally rubbish. It's the stuff nobody thought was worth saving. It's broken and old and thrown away. But that makes it more of a representation of real life. It's the disposable stuff people used every day. And that makes it so relatable for everyone. This podcast is a joint production by Heritage New Zealand, Pauhiri Tonga and the New Zealand Archaeological Association. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to Aotearoa Unearthed for more episodes. Next week, I'll be talking to two experts about Māori rock art. 